welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode number 202, and it's part two of a recap of a hunt that Steve and myself completed on Kodiak Island earlier this month for Sitka Blacktail. So as you hopefully heard in part one, we had a great time and a great trip. Here in the second part of our discussion about that trip, we're answering your listener questions, diving deeper into the gear um, that you need to consider for such a hunt, and then also just talking in general about why Kodiak is such a great opportunity, even if you're newer to hunting. Um, You'll kind of hear some of our thoughts on that at the end. So guys, thank you for tuning in. Before we dive into the show Something that we have slacked at is giving you guys a thank you for the feedback, iTunes reviews, that type of thing. So I have three guys, the North Range Hunter, Kyle Phelps, and Super Dave 29 If you guys send us an email to podcast at xmountgear.com, we'll send you guys some swag just to say thank you for the feedback and support. And listeners, if you can share this episode with a friend, tell them about the show, If you can give us uh, some episode suggestions or ideas, or if you want to leave a review in iTunes or wherever else you might be listening to this, all that helps us tremendously, and we certainly appreciate it. So thank you guys so much for doing that. All right, let's get right into this discussion on our Sitka Blacktail Hunt. All right, Steve, back to talk part two of the Kodiak Hunt. Um, To kick things off, let's just go ahead and and dive into a few listener questions that we got from the last episode in part one. Um, Yeah, so in no certain order, let's kick these off. What was the average weight of the boned out meat you were able to harvest from each deer? Um, So Sitka Blacktail, average yield for that. And again, we had the the good opportunity to actually, well, you didn't, Steve, I did, <laughs> to trim and actually package um, all of the deer. So wh- what's your first thought on the, what that ballpark is? <laughs> um, I'd say we're close to 100 pounds packing out. I, I don't, We didn't have a scale, man. I don't know. Um, I don't think I could accurately answer that question. It could have been, um, I know, well, no, wait, who... Mike's pack was 105 pounds coming out with the deer gear, uh, but that was cape. deer and cape and head. Yeah. yeah. So 80 and bone in 70. Yeah. 75 pounds bone in. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking what you would yield again, trimmed, packaged, everything was at 50 to 60 probably. Um, I didn't weigh everything particularly but I, th- I think you'd be in that ballpark like fully actually yielded and that's me and i'm actually pretty picky on trimming um but yeah and, and you know like anything else there's bigger deer and smaller deer but i think that i think that's a good number to count on of actually packaged meat 
Um, yeah. Again, bone-in, obviously, are going to be higher than that. So, yeah, yeah. they definitely weren't. My assumption and everyone I talked to's assumption that hasn't been there is that these are small deer. They were not small deer. The the bucks were you know every bit of two hundred pounds. Uh, the more mature ones that we killed, they're they're not uh, your typical smaller blacktail. And, and I think um, for my understanding, the, the bucks are just maybe bigger bodied on Kodiak than some of the other places. Um, and then specifically on that side of the island. I was, we were talking to a guy on the airplane coming home and he's like, man, the bucks just have just bigger bucks over there with more mass to their antlers and stuff. So, yeah, um, maybe, maybe we're just in a geographical area where they're a little bigger than typical. Yeah. And they were crazy fatty, like insane (laughs) amounts of fat on those suckers. I was shocked. Yeah. Two inches of fat just all around the ribs and just everywhere. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, They were really, really. They're kind of short leg, but just super stocky, you know, right. just look tough kind of, kind of deer. Yeah. Uh, we had another question on meat actually and weights. Um, the guy wanted to clarify, we had mentioned bringing back, you know, maybe 70 pounds of fish. He was trying to clarify, was that individually or collectively among the three of us? And oh. yes, that was individually. Um, yes. we each had that much fish, uh, t- 200 plus pounds of fish and then we just split it three ways directly again that was all trimmed and packed so it was a good haul of fish for sure and then he asked about uh the cost that we covered previously did that include fishing fees and what was involved there a seven day sport fishing license is 70 dollars, i think steve is that right uh, yep 77 i believe yeah somewhere like super close to 70 bucks so um yeah that was all we had in terms of uh the cost um, in terms of fees for fishing, there's yeah, things you can do on top of that, like king stamps and other things. Yeah. Uh, so the, and the, the, uh, fit, you know, the, the lodge that we stayed at the guide, they, you know, they fish all summer. Um, I, I don't, they didn't charge us to go fishing for the day. Uh, really it's a, a better value because when you're hunting, they just drop you off and then they have the whole day to themselves and they pick you up at dark where they take you fishing and they're out in the boat with you all day and they're working and burning, burning gas in the boat, but he didn't charge. Uh, any extra than um, I'd imagine some lodges do probably just I guess a question to ask up front yeah it's definitely a lot more work for uh, guys like that to take you fishing than it is for them to take you hunting simply because they just drop you off and pick you up it's a it's a long day as you said fuel time it's a lot more work for sure um another related note a question like the caribou hunt what did you pay in baggage shipping to get everything home um again alaska airlines if you have the credit card i want to say it's your first bag is free um if not the standard structure is i believe 30 dollars for your first bag 40 for your seconds and then everyone thereafter is a hundred dollars um keep in mind an overweight or oversized bag is a hundred dollars but depending on the number you're going to pay $100 anyway. So if it's your third yeah. or fourth bag, it could weigh as much as you want, essentially, um, and be whatever. So when it comes to meat, um, you know, if you have a 80-pound box of meat, a 100-pound box of meat, you're going to pay 100 bucks for that um, overweight, but you're going to pay it anyway if it's your third, fourth, fifth um, box. So I came home with uh, my duffel of gear, my rifle case, um, which also had, obviously, a rifle, but a bunch of other gear in it. And then three meat boxes uh, combined of fish and deer. So you're basically at three 
370. Yeah, 370 if you don't have a free uh, item with Alaska Airlines. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it was uh, spot right, spot on. And then, yeah, the, the um, when they were packaging up the boxes or we were putting them all together, the they're so used to just keeping everything under 50 pounds. And it, yeah, like you said, it just doesn't – once you get to that third bag, it just doesn't matter so long as the, – the only thing I think that – well, no, it's just 100 bucks regardless. So it, is. it doesn't matter the size. doesn't matter the weight just a hundred bucks flat. So you might as well, I know I had one box that weighed like 87 pounds. Uh, so you might as well just jam as much as you can in there. Cause it's going to cost you the same. Yeah. And it was interesting the the boxes of fish, you know, there's less dense, that meat is less dense. And so you get, I mean, even if you pack it full, it's roughly 50 pounds. Yeah. Um, whereas if you pack that same box dimensionally full of deer meat, it's going to weigh a heck of a lot heavier. So yeah. that's a difference <laughs> to keep in mind. Uh, I, I will say going back to the fish, we, uh, I took, um, went over to a really good friend of mine's house on Saturday night and we, uh, um, I brought over a salmon fillet, some cod and some halibut. So we threw the salmon on the Traeger and then cod and the halibut. I did the, uh, Parmesan crusted uh, recipe. And then eat, while my wife was eating it, she said she did say, if you can bring back this much fish every time, you can go every year on this trip. So yes, <laughs> I was like, check. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it was pretty uh, it was freaking delicious uh, cooking it up that way. That Parmesan crusted stuff was, you know, I don't know how healthy it is cooking it in the oil, but uh, taste wise is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a perk for sure. Like my wife's not even crazy in fish, but she's been really enjoying it. And I think looking forward to it and hopefully looking forward to it more in the future we'll see yeah <laughs> um a question another listener i know you guys stayed at the lodge but if you were backpacking what tent do you think you would use would it be the same as your caribou hunt um and yeah basically what is a suitable tent for kodiak so obviously again we have not backpacked in kodiak uh we did talk with rafe um who's done a lot of backpacking on kodiak um, and it is Alaska, um, definitely could have some different demands than, than the lower 48 for sure. So what's your first thought on a backpacking specific tent? And then I'll also throw that out there. Backpacking, I think is an interesting question. Cause even if it's a quote unquote backpack hunt, there's a really good chance you're being dropped by a plane versus what you might typically think of backpacking the lower 48, meaning you're packing in six miles. So you could be in the quote unquote back country backpacking um but it is interesting with weight because you're probably being dropped by a plane but anyway go ahead steve what do you what's your first thought yeah i mean hilleberg is obviously the one that jumps out to to my mind the most between when you're talking four season and high quality tent that's going to take some serious abuse um there's just flat out you're gonna that there's the potential to see some crazy weather that you could go up there and i think it's not you know it probably happens a couple times a year where there's two days of 40 to 70 mile an hour winds and if you go up there with your average you know super light three season tent that you'd use use here in idaho in september october um you, that might get tortoise shreds up there uh versus the caribou hunt there's a lot of brush there's a lot of terrain i think you could obviously find some holes to crawl into um to where you could get kind of protected from the weather but i'd still just in case you got you know the only place you could pitch your tent was fairly exposed uh, you just need something that's going to be able to handle that. So outside of Hilleberg, I don't have a lot of experience with, you know, I, there's plenty of companies out there that uh, have their versions of four season, you know, tents that can handle some serious stuff. But um, I definitely wouldn't go there with a, you know, a sub two pound ultra light tent. 
you know, like a big Agnes fly Creek. Yeah. It might hold up, might not, but I definitely, you know, that, uh, it legitimately could be, um, your tent in that scenario is your shelter and it could legitimately like a good shelter or bad shelter could, could be the big difference between you getting life flighted out of there or you just hanging out in a tent for a couple of days and hang, you know, like being fine once the storm cleared. So, um, definitely not something to take lightly. I'd put it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, it's not the same hunt as our caribou hunt, but I still think the variability that we experienced on our caribou hunt applies. Um, you know, tents that I used on here a lot, like some sort of seek teepee or a Nemo Hornet, that type of thing. Uh, very comfortable with those down here. They've done great, but I would not be taking them backpacking up there. And again, you might have a trip where those are fine, but there's a really good chance that you're going to experience uh, some increased demand, we'll call it, <laughs> on that type yeah. of tent. Yeah, so. I mean, we were there, it was 40, 50 degrees, light rain, and almost no wind. I mean, any any tent, you, I could have had my tarp and baby sack and been fine. Um, but just, there is, you just have the potential for those crazy storms to come in. And when they do, you just don't want something that's, um, designed not for that. Right. Yeah. Um, had someone write in asking about what rifles we used, what were our shooting setups, what were typical shot distances, basically how things went down, um, with actually filling those tags with weapons. What's your experience, Steve? What do you want to share there? Uh, so I brought my 6.5 PRC, uh, loved it. been shooting that gun quite a bit this year. I'm trying to get familiar with it. I haven't, uh, being critical of myself, uh, and I'm probably, you know, going to lump myself in with 95% of the dudes out there. Uh, I've just gone to the range and, you know, laid prone or sat on a bench and shot that thing. I really need to get out and do some shooting off packs in the mountains you know it's, it's hard to do that right like to take the time and uh, get up there and do that but um it, this gun i built is fairly light and i you know i'm fairly new to the rifle game here but i'm seeing that you know when you're on your bipod laying prone light gun doesn't freaking matter when i'm trying to rest on a tree limb um i had the same thing if, if anyone remembers talking about the deer that i missed here in idaho during opening weekend of rifle season i could not get that gun stable and i think just being lighter is not helping that situation so um yeah i, I want to practice more in, in the kind of random off you know shooting off packs and lit tree limbs and stuff like that next year but as far as um i think you know any obviously they're just 200 pound deer any caliber is going to work great uh, you had your out six. I think Mike had a 300 wind mag. I had my PRC. All those were, you know, 300 wind mags, probably a little overkill. Um, but I guess from the bear perspective, not a bad thing to have in your hands. And then, um, I, obviously we talked about this, uh, shooting sticks were an absolute must up there. Um, the, it was, I was telling this to a friend of mine yesterday, just kind of recounting the hunt that basically after a couple of days we adapted to, you never even stopped a glass until you could stop at a spot that you could shoot because seeing the deer, they'd pop out. It happened so quickly that if you didn't have a gun ready, say if you're just walking along and, and you're kind of basically we'd be in brush that was chest high, you pull up your binos, you're like, oh, there's a deer. Um, you take your binos off them, the deer's gone. It takes three steps back into the brush and could you know stay in that brush all day. Um, so we had to kind of adapt to basically it was pointless to glass unless you could get somewhere where you could shoot from. So I wouldn't stop and glass until, you know, like that, the second buck I shot, we were kind of down in some Aspen trees and there were some limbs I could shoot off of. 
Um, the first one, actually the first one, that was tricky. I had to move about 150 yards just trying to find a place to shoot. Um, so you, you really needed shooting sticks and I'd say full height shooting sticks, right? That something where you could basically be standing up because you just need to get that gun above the brush. Um, and then really the best tactic for me, um, that made the most sense is finding kind of a, a sniper platform, uh, you know, a place where you can get lay prone, get the gun nice and stable, and then just hang out there and glass until the deer did pop out and be ready the second it did. We kind of did that mark with your, with your second buck. We, we found a big clearing that you could prop up, get the shooting sticks out. And then we are like, all right, we can see a lot of country. Uh, let's just hang out here until a buck pops out. And there's so many deer there. It's just, uh, it's an inevitability that, that one's going to pop out at, at some point. Yeah, I think um, it's it's interesting because you can you can hunt country there where you're literally in bow range, and I mean like spitting distance bow range, and so there's there's definitely possibilities for short shots depending on where and how you're hunting, and at the same time, you could get up into more open country and have a really long shot, and I think honestly you can put a lot of that in your control um, with with what you want to do. Like, do you want to have those up close encounters? Um, do you want to get in a spot where if you feel like your effective range is 300 yards, then you just have a lot of opportunity within 300 yards. There's a lot of variability in how you approach this, especially with a rifle. Um, both of my shots, um, you know, were two, a little over 200 yards, um, which is, you know, pretty common probably, um, that neither, the first one, especially, I couldn't have closed the distance at all and actually first spotted that buck at like 125 and didn't get a shot opportunity until he was a little over two. Um, and then that second one was a little over two, which, as you said, Steve, we were kind of sitting and waiting, um, you know, looking at that hillside for something to step out. But yeah, shooting sticks, be it from standing, as you mentioned, is a must in some instances, maybe, depending on what that brushes look like. I ended up shooting both of mine basically from like a kneeling supported position with the front of my rifle, um, in the shooting sticks. And then my rear elbow, um, you know, kind of secured in a knee. Um, again, I'm not like versed like you, Steve, with shooting those positions. It's something I want to do a heck of a lot more, um, both from sticks and a pack and everything, but yeah, definitely look at having some type of support. Um, I was, I don't know if I mentioned specifically what I was using, but uh, there's a small company called Wiser Precision. I actually just found these right before the hunt. Uh, and they're basically just little adapters for your trekking poles to turn those into shooting sticks. Um, obviously, there's a lot of quote unquote like DIY methods where you can just turn trekking poles into shooting sticks. You can, you know, loop uh, the fabric of the handles around each other. You can make these little quick clips with string and paracord and a carabiner. There's There's lots of things, but um, the quick sticks were really nice for sure because it's a secure, um, attachment to each pole. You can continue to use each pole individually, just trekking poles, but like literally in a second, you can just pair, um, those attachments of the poles to each other and then rotate them to create, you know, a stable platform to shoot from. Um, and then obviously being trekking pole based, you can customize the height of that. So whether that's kneeling, standing, you can kind of control that. It made it really easy, even just as we were covering country where I felt like there might be some sort of shoot opportunity to, to carry those in hand. Um, and you can actually carry it where the adapters are holding the poles together in one unit. So you're not holding each pole individually. 
Um, and then obviously once you fill the tag, you just, you have your trekking poles. So they were cool for sure. Um, so you guys can check those out if you're interested, but definitely some sort of shooting sticks. Um, yeah, I mean, caliber, take whatever you want. Obviously, as you mentioned, Steve, they're, they are a tough deer, I think. Um, they're a tough critter, but again, they're 200 pound deer, but then you have those other variables of, you know, you might be firing some rounds at a, at a big grizz. So, I wouldn't go in undergunned per se, unless you're relying on something else for grizz protection. Um, but you, you don't need to get too specific. Uh, I don't think for that hunt with a caliber. Last listener question, Steve, this is a, this is a tricky one. <laughs> okay. What boots did we wear on this trip? Oh yeah, that was fun. Uh, <laughs> a bunch, <laughs> a whole bunch. Yeah. So we mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks back that I was testing some different ones so, and yeah, we brought them up. I think between the three of us, we had five or, uh, between you and I, we had five pairs of boots, um, that we rotated around. Um, this was an exceptionally wet hunt. Um, one, it just rained on us. Basically the first four days of the trip was nonstop rain. Then we finally got a little bit better weather. Uh, the ground was just freaking wet. Uh, I think the week prior of us getting there, they said it had just been raining. So it was just abnormally wet. And then I think just a wet hunt in general, you're hunting right off the ocean, there's a lot of moisture around. Um, great, great, great test for the Gore-Tex uh, of all these boots. And frankly, they all held up well, uh, which was um, surprising. I thought for sure some of them were going to leak, but I don't think we had any of them leak. Did you? No, I think I had moisture in it one day and I think, it, long story, but I had my pants down under my gaiters and I think my pants soaked up moisture and like seeped it and dropped it in my boots. But yeah, in general, the boots performed really well. Yeah. Um, so I guess I had, um, and these are all just ones I've researched out and like, okay, these look promising ordered them up. So Garmont, uh, tube call, uh, Gore-Tex. I had a Scarpa ZG Trek, and then I had the La Sportiva Nucleo um, Gore-Tex as well. And um, still pretty undecided. <laughs> like they yeah. were all um, – they all did well uh, in certain scenarios. That The La Sportiva Nucleo might be a new it's – a, it's a lighter boot than the rest of them. It might be um, my new favorite like all-around shoe. I'm specifically looking for more of a, a late-season – uh, kind of all weather boot, but this thing is super light. It's my feet stayed incredibly dry, um, and it, you know, it's really really comfortable shoe. The uh, Garmont and the Scarpa are both your typical stiffer sole. Scarpa had a little bit of. Um, I, I wore that the day I killed that bigger buck, and you know we had a pretty decent pack out out of that. And um, the balls of my feet were pretty tender. I mean, I didn't have any blisters or anything major, but definitely like by the time we got back to the boat it was you're you're like okay i'd like to get my shoes off um you know you're just kind of uncomfortable and then the garmont tube call um you can talk about your experience with them because i know you really enjoyed them for part of your trip um but i wore them on that last day and yeah stayed stayed dry they're stiffer they're the stiffest out of all of them um but for being stiff they're pretty comfortable i think we both agreed that uh, they would really benefit from a high quality 
insole that has a lot of cushion to it. Yeah, so you had all those, um, which were all new. I had never tried any of those before, and uh, we wear the same size boot, so we went up kind of knowing we're just going to swap back and forth. I brought my Technicas, um, which we've talked about on this podcast, and then I brought uh, Crispies, which I wore um, for part of the trip in September for our caribou hunt. Um, I was... I've, there's never been really anything in the Technicas that I haven't been happy with. Um, but I've after this trip, I think I appreciate them even more. Um, I'm just really happy with them overall. They did great. Um, yeah, they're just, they're comfortable. They're constructed well. Um, obviously being custom molded, they should fit your foot well and they do fit my foot really well. So I was really happy with them um, after this hunt in those conditions. Uh, the Garmots, Again, I, I went in not knowing anything about these boots, never have seen them, tried them, put them on the first half of the day. I'm like, we're hiking up some steep stuff through some thick stuff. They're incredibly comfortable. I'm literally asking Steve, like, so did you, where did you buy these? Like, I'm trying to see how much they are. I'm like imagining getting online as, as we're coming home to buy a pair. Like they were that comfortable. Um, and just, I, I liked how they were designed and constructed by the end of the day. Actually, that was the that was the day we packed out your first buck, Steve. So I had to get to do like a heavy pack um, with those. By the end of the day, I wasn't having major issues. Um, it was just kind of what you described, Steve, of like, yeah, I'm ready to get my boots off. And I, I truly do think that was just if I had a better insole in those, um, with a bit more cushion and comfort. Again, being a stiffer boot, it was just kind of that feeling of your feet are just kind of worn out. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think with an insole, um, something I. I wear Lathrop insoles and quite a few boots. Um, I think if I were to drop those in that Garmot, um, I'd be incredibly happy with them. So I'm actually going to steal them back from you, Steve, so I can try them with the insole and prove that fact. <laughs> so I'll report yeah, back. But yeah. Um, yeah, those were a great boot. The La Sportivas, uh, the first time I tried those on is actually when we were in the hotel room before we flew out uh, to the other side of the island. And I think the first thing I said was, these are like house slippers. Like they were stupid, yeah. comfortable, um, a lot of flex, really light, um, just a good everyday wear boot for sure. Just in general, um, I wore those on the trip actually the day that we each killed a buck. Um, so I packed out my second buck solo pack out with those boots, um, with that in relatively easy terrain too. That day was easy country compared to a lot of the other country we hunted, but a solo pack, I mean, heavy pack with it. Um, they were comfortable for sure. Being a softer boot, just one thing I've noticed, um, is that downhill with a softer boot with less structure, I just get more slip, um, you know, up front. And I don't feel like the boot was too big or I was getting a lot of slip, but I was experiencing that. And I think it was just to do with it being a softer, much more flexible boot. So it's something that they're comfortable, um, but in tough terrain with a heavy pack, I don't, for me, not quite enough, um, stiffness or support. I think for a lot of prolonged use, like if I were doing an elk pack out or a multiple trips, that type of thing, I would definitely want more boot. Um, or, you know, an extended trip where it's a 10 day thing and you might be packing out an animal with your buddy and then going back in to fill another tag, I'd want more boot, but um, certainly something comfortable. And if you're like Steve, where you just prefer, you know, more flex and, and something light and soft, they're nice for sure. Um, 
the third, the Las Sportivas, I would, I don't know. I just have to do a lot more. I didn't have like a strong opinion in those one way or the other. Um, so yeah, I don't have too much to say on those, but yeah, it was fun literally day after day trying a different boot. And for me, I'd not tried any of them before. And as you said, it was a great freaking testing grounds with how wet it was, how steep mm-hmm. some sections were, how loose some sections were. I would say that's my, my one gripe with the Technicas and, I overlooked to say that this has been a gripe since day one is the traction on those are pretty terrible. Um, and I think that's the only complaint I can find with those. When we first got those, it was January, February last year. Um, and one of the first hikes I did with those was actually when we were uh, at Hunt Expo in Salt Lake and we did a, a climb right there outside of Salt Lake and it was, it was snowy and slushy. And I was like, Oh, these not very great. And then we did, another snowy hike uh in boise and literally no matter how hard i hiked i couldn't keep up with steve and it wasn't because steve was out hiking me which is completely normal trust me i was like falling behind because i had zero traction and just couldn't keep up i was just sliding so the tech the the grip on those are horrible which leads me into something else for this trip i brought was the micro spikes um and not specifically for the technicas but just in general i knew it was gonna be wet potentially steep uh, in sections, and I just wanted to try those more. So I, I did wear the micro spikes with the Technicas uh, and several other boots for that matter um, and went back and forth sometimes throughout the day wearing them, not wearing them, that type of thing. They're pretty impressive. Um, I'm still not the guy who is going to use those anywhere and everywhere, um, but in wet stuff and steep stuff and in certain conditions – um, they're definitely worth the wait. They're easy to get on, easy to get off. They stay put well. And it, I mean, the only thing I can compare it to is like having four wheel drive. Like you're slipping, you don't have traction, put micro spikes on, you got traction, just go. Yeah. Um, and that What's was the company that makes those again. Oh, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. It pops right Check. up. If you, okay. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Micro spikes. Catula. K-A-H-T-O-O-L-A, Katula. Um, so yeah, they're money for, uh, for steep stuff or loop stuff. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic for sure. Um, I, I wore them during packouts and even in certain sections, I thought they're going to be more, cause more harm than good because there's a lot of like brush and just stuff that they could get stuck on. Um, but they actually did really well in that. So overall, I was a huge fan of those. Um, and they're certainly a benefit to like my technicos where the traction sucks anyway. Um, but yeah, I was pretty impressed with those. Those were definitely, uh, something newer to me, um, that proved, proved to be worth it for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, related to footwear and this is the case for different reasons than like our last trip to the caribou, just again, for both of these trips, good gators were a must, um, you know, on the previous caribou trip, you're just constantly through standing water, swampy stuff, marshy stuff on this trip. It was just more a matter of things were just wet in general. Um, and then you're going through all kinds of brush and things that could be grabbing at your pants. So if you didn't kind of have gators sealing your pants over your boot, you'd be in trouble and wet and getting crap in there all the time. So that was just another, you know, as we talk about footwear, um, just throw gators along with that and just plan on bringing a good pair of, um, you know, right below the knee calf height, 
uh, Gators or Crocs or something like that. I had the first light, first light version. Cool. Anything else on footwear, Steve? No, very much covered it. Sweet. We did. Um, we did want to talk a little bit more about gear in this episode. It was a, a very different trip. Um, staying at a lodge was new to you and I, Steve, and not backpacking and not being more self-sufficient, even from a you know camping base camp, but actually having a lodge. So pretty minimal gear was required, but um, you know just a few little things that stand out that are worth mentioning. Um, you know, we talked about rifles before on that for this trip, packing gun oil was really nice. Um, everything's mm-hmm. wet all of the time. Um, my Tika's stainless, uh, Steve, your, uh, your rifle has carbon barrel. Um, the Mike specifically had just a standard blued barrel in action and he was having rust issues for sure. Um, both just to keep things functional as well as from a protective perspective, packing gun oil um i'd highly recommend for hunting kodiak um another thing that came up big which is a little item but could make a big difference um is just a scope cover steve we actually Mm. realized that you forgot your scope cover um and thankfully in town in kodiak before we took the float plane over to larson bay we were able to get you set up i had a neoprene just you know stretch cover on my scope which worked well steve you ended up going with caps uh front and rear because mm-hmm. that's what they had that fit best at the sporting goods store but i think you're a fan of those after using them right yeah yeah i think they're um gosh what the heck are those things called uh, butler creek yeah just the butler yeah. creek butler Creek's scope covers yeah they were fantastic i did in all the brush and stuff i did lose the one on the um the uh front side of my scope uh, the eye you know where you're looking the closer to your eye uh, it fell off at some point. It was a pretty tight fit. It must have just gotten really, really caught up in some brush. But yeah, they were fantastic. It, you know, it was raining a lot, and uh, my optics were always dry and and clear when I popped those things open. So they worked worked very well and did their job until I lost that one. But then it was just kind of a fluke. Yeah, and it's minor, but I actually I've always liked the neoprene stretch cover, but for this hunt specifically, with how wet it was, that thing just got soaked, and I could see yeah. it letting actually water in. Um, so caps were actually fantastic for this hunt. Obviously the downside potential downside there is the scope body itself is exposed. If you care about that getting scratched or want your turrets protected or something, you know, the neoprene cover is going to offer that with full coverage. But, um, in terms of just caring for your lens and ensuring that those lens are clear and dry, uh, and ready for a shot opportunity caps are the way to go for sure. So, um, we never, we brought a spotter. We never packed a spotter, Steve. Again, I think this goes back to us talking about how you're hunting and where you're hunting. Cause it's hard to say that a spotter is or isn't required. There's plenty of places you could use it or you could never touch it for a week. What are your thoughts on a spotter? Yeah. Uh, well, I brought a big Koa 88 and frankly just never wanted to pack it. Our packs were already kind of heavy with with all the rain gear and extra clothes we had because it was so wet um, that uh, I kind of just wussed out and didn't pack it. There's plenty of times I wanted it. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. Like I, I saw a buck through the scope, right? And I um, want to look at it closer. But the reality is, even if it was a nice buck, I wasn't going to be able to kill it. 
um, right? Because it was that far away in the spine scope. By the time I could hike over there, the thing was gone. It was in the brush and and it disappeared, you know? So potential to glass a buck way back in a basin and go, like if you're specifically looking for a, you know, a hundred inch plus deer and find it and then go hike over there and, and sit on a vantage point for an entire day, hoping that buck steps out. Yeah. in that scenario, you know, for sure how we were hunting with basically more or less like let's, you know, pile up three deer each and, and bring home a lot of meat and just take what opportunities are given to us. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of benefit to pack it. If, if the buck was within, within shooting range, you could put your rifle scope on it and get an idea what it was. And if it wasn't, uh, by the time you got to shooting range, the thing was going to be gone. Um, how about clothing? What stands out for you for clothing? What should someone consider for clothing for this hunt? You know, it's, it's just the wet is the only aspect of it. It wasn't particularly cold. It was 40 to 50 degrees. Um, you definitely need stuff that's tough. You know, we all had uh, quote-unquote high-end rain gear. Uh, Mike had some Sitka stuff. I was wearing some cryptic altitude. You were wearing first light. Um, if you hunt, if you're a guide and you hunt that, like you would destroy any quality rain gear within a month. Uh, it is so brushy and thorny, and you're just, you're just busting through stuff. It just tears it up. So it was almost like you'd have to have like cheap rain gear to bust through the brush, and then have your quality stuff in the pack. Uh, if you're gonna go backpacking, I would recommend that. Um, I know we talked to Rafe, um, the the guy there at the lodge, um, about sometimes he'll just if it is raining, you just you have like a, a base layer uh, that you hike in and, and you're just going to get soaked, but uh, you just take it off and have dry stuff. That that kind of became our go-to was uh, just making sure we always had dry clothes in the pack. Once we kind of got done with the hiking and got done busting all the brush, then you had something dry and warm because if, if it wasn't the water getting you, it was the sweat getting you. Um, and you'd just be – there's a couple times it looked like my shirt was um, like just dunked in, in, in the stream. You know, It was just completely soaked and – most of that was from sweat, just just working our tails off to get up in there. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I think gloves. We talk, um, all that thorny stuff. Having a really tough um, and then not insulated glove. So like a mechanics work glove, maybe a thin leather glove, something like that. That that thorn uh, devil's club stuff was was everywhere, and I just had some regular my regular rag wool gloves, and they're not probably ideal for that. They got pretty tore up. Um, but you just, it's so steep and slippery in places that you do have to grab onto the brush and then you gotta be pretty, uh, you know, aware of what you're grabbing onto if you don't have gloves on. Cause that, that stuff is everywhere. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, good rain gear. Um, it, it almost felt like you were living in rain gear at times again, even when it wasn't raining, everything was just so wet, especially when you're in the brush. Um, just one, one standout to me. Like literally last minute, a week before the hunt, ordered the first light sawbuck pants, uh, which are kind of their brush pants, kind of meant for upland stuff. Um, they honestly weren't on my radar. It's something I need for my general hunting needs. Um, but I got to think about this trip and I was like, you know, it's supposed to be brushy. It's going to be wet. I want something tough. Yada, yada, yada. I was like, yeah, I'll give them a shot. Um, so I ordered them. Um, literally never put them on or anything before the hunt and then wore those. And I was actually really impressed with those for this type of hunt specifically. Um, they do, you know, have some level of DWR in them. So they, you know, there's a few times I can think of where I was wearing those and Steve, you and Mike were still wearing rain pants, not cause it was raining, mm-hmm. but just cause we're through so much wet stuff. 
Um, and they did a great job with that. And then in terms of, you know, them being tough enough to stand up to the devil's club and alders and everything else we were through. Um, those were actually really nice. So I was impressed with those. Again, they were completely new to me. I honestly didn't know a ton about them other than I thought they might've worked well and they ended up being pretty freaking ideal. Again, not necessarily a pants I need for, you know, an elk hunt in September, but for this, they were, they were money for sure. Yeah. Um, another little thing just to think about, uh, for this hunt was just having a good number of trash bags with you, dry bags or trash bags. So whether that's to line your pack when things are incredibly wet or just thinking of, you know, we packed out seven deer in four days, it might be okay to get a pack bloody if, you know, it's an elk pack out and then you're going home, you can wash it, but when you're wanting to hunt day after day and then also travel home with the pack um, and be in Grizz country, we were trying to keep blood off the packs uh, as much as possible. So we would actually, you know, drop the game meat into a dry bag or a trash bag. Again, long-term in heat, there's obviously things to consider with that, but the conditions we were in and the length of time that the meat spent within that, it was fine. Um, and it was, it, it was kind of a lifesaver in terms of, this hunt specifically as many packouts as you had day after day. Um, trying to think of any other unique or just like particular things that think by anything come to mind, Steve. No, I think that was it. Yeah. The, um, I used, uh, some of the extra drive bags for packing meat a couple times. One, one time I didn't have one through, through everything in a trash bag worked fine. The trash bag's super slippery. So it's kind of hard to, to get like stuck to the frame, you know, just that everything wants to slide around. But, um, yeah, that, like you said, that was super nice. Just having a clean pack and not having to worry about a brown bear jumping on your back while you're hiking <laughs> through the woods with a bloody pack on. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it was. It's not super uh, gear heavy hunt, like you said. It's just there's a few unique things that are outside of our normal realm of you know basically most of it's dealing with how wet it is and then how brushy and and you know just making sure you have good durable stuff. Yeah, cool. Just to recap this hunt, Steve. You know, we we talked last time pretty shortly after the hunt, and then now we've had time to think about it more, tell more stories, things like that. About the hunt itself, or just the trip in general, like, what's your high? What's What stands out to you? What's most memorable? Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think just the overall experience. It was super positive. Everyone we met on Kodiak was friendly and helpful from the uh, just from people in the hotels, the shuttle driver from the airport, the Island air service was amazing. Um, Jerry at the lodge was fantastic. Just, you know, it was just kind of first class all around. Um, everyone just kind of went out of their way to help you. It was really nice. Uh, beautiful country, uh, you know, the hunt itself. Um, we talked about this, I think like day two was, this is like the perfect hunt. If you are, from you know back east midwest and you're like going out elk hunting and trying to get into western hunting um a little bit this is a great hunt to do you know a couple years into that just because you get um you know it's it's physical it's a good balance of everything mm -hmm. and it's a chance to like whether you're bow hunting or rifle hunting you, you know you get to put down if you if you and a buddy go you're gonna put down six deer so you're gonna you know get some good practice cutting up animals uh, quartering them up, deboning them. Um, it's just a great hunt. I wouldn't do it, like I said, as your first kind of, uh, I'm calling it a Western hunt. Um, but yeah, a couple years into it, 
if you're struggling to find success, I think it's like a it's a great way to go and get a bunch of experience and um and just put some animals down. So it was fun. Yeah, it was fun for me um, with with a rifle. You know, I said I'm you know for the last 15 plus years been a bow hunter and just getting into this last few years and um, it's been fun. Yeah, I agree. I, I want to make sure we hit that point because I wholeheartedly agree. Again, as you said, maybe not the first time, but if you have some experience with gear and hiking and kind of the mountains, if you will, and you're just kind of looking to go to the next level of, all right, I need to fill some tags. I need to break down some critters. I need to learn how to pack stuff out. I need to learn how to find animals through glass better. I need to learn how to stalk better. All those things. It's just, there's a lot of opportunity there. So approach it how you want it. Bow, rifle. Um, you know, if you're bow hunting and want to just almost practice on animals doing stalks, it's a target rich environment. You could blow it and move and probably get on another one. Um, so yeah, there's, there's just a lot to it that there's value there for sure. Um, and clearly, you know, there's, there's a cost level as we talked about before though, if you do this as like a drop hunt, a DIY hunt, not a lodge based hunt, you can cut that cost to where it's pretty freaking approachable. Um, obviously you still have, you know, travel and baggage and all those logistics, but man, I, I almost want to piece it together and see what it'd be. But for like between two and three grand, I think you could do this as a DIY hunt, which is, you know, not chump change, but it's also not five or six grand. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of opportunity in Kodiak, I think for different species, different types of hunts, different time of the year, different styles, be it backpack or lodge base. There, there's just a lot there to explore that I think uh, it should be on folks' radar for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, that's that's a wrap on part two, guys. Um, you know, again, if there's if there's questions that come up from any of this, we can hit them on a Monday minute or anything like that. But that's a pretty good recap of the opportunities in Kodiak, kind of some of the gear highlights and some of the costs. And hopefully that helps you guys out. It's, it's for sure a fantastic place to hunt as always contact us. If you have those questions or any other feedback to podcasts at exomountgear.com, as we mentioned on Monday in the Monday minute, which you may or may not have heard, we're launching a sale through Exomount gear next year or next year, <laughs> next week. Um, so check that out if you happen to be interested And otherwise, we'll catch you next week. 